The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. This is called The Bright Boundless Field by Master Hong Zhir. The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, and brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. Utter emptiness has no image. Upright independence does not rely on anything. Just expand and illuminate the original truth unconcerned by external conditions. Accordingly, we are told to realize that not a single thing exists. In this field, birth and death do not appear. The deep source, transparent down to the bottom, can radiantly shine and can respond unencumbered to each speck of dust without becoming its partner. The subtlety of seeing and hearing transcends mere colors and sounds. The whole affair functions without leaving traces and mirrors without obscurations. Very naturally, mind and dharmas emerge and harmonize. An ancient said that non-mind embodies and fulfills the way of non-mind. Embodying and fulfilling the way of non-mind, finally you can rest. With thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center circle of wonder. This is how you must penetrate and study. Did you get all that? (laughs) Dark to the mind, radiant to the heart. These are practice instructions by an 11th century Chinese Zen teacher. And so there are things that we can practice. It's a way of being that he's illuminating. And so... Within that, um, where it led me, I would like to draw upon meeting the grasper in our life. How to recognize the mechanics of proliferation in our mind of thoughts that generate reactivity, views that distort our capacity to see and understand the way things actually are which causes great suffering for us. How do we work and understand this mind? Is there a proliferation-free zone where we don't keep the whole thing going on and on, you know, proliferating, right? So just thinking about um, the world today and what we're all holding, I think when he says, be unconcerned, I don't think he means unconcerned about external conditions. I don't think he's saying don't care. 
but what is this unconcern that we can look at it in a way where we're not lifted off by our feet and twirled, which many of us are, just twirling. So I wanted to kind of get in that the mechanisms that happen when we start going off in our mind, when we encounter news, uh, disturbing information, the grief that's already in us, the dread and the fear right in front of our eyes. How do we find peace and understand the mechanisms that keep the whole thing going within us? Is there a way to meet this and move in harmony with the way things are? Because we can't control external or internal conditions, for that matter, that may arise. So how do we meet that? So these are practice instruction by a seasoned teacher. So we're already being offered, we know, something, a way that we can live in harmony, um, something we can do. And, you know, even though there's um, one thing after another happening on this earth, politicians, slanted speech, slanted facts, how do we keep not supplying ourselves with that fill and also notice the beauty, the medicine that's all around us as well? How do we find that abundance of supply and administer that medicine to ourselves? That's what the Buddha's teachings are. So when we choose a life of training and practices, some of you are just walking in for the first time. You chose to come here this morning. It's a life of practice and, and training means we, we're willing to give up our ordinary ways of thinking and viewing, at least not base it on what we know, uh, ch- you know, um, don't assume things. These, he's, as he speaks of it, these tendencies that we have fabricated into apparent habits to expand and illuminate the original truth unconcerned by external conditions. I would add to that internal conditions, cutting through our own false notions, the fundamental misunderstanding of many lifetimes of who we actually are, as this, that we're not this fixed system, that our DNA is the entire universe. It's stars and, and bits of planets, as well as our entire lineage. And to recognize our mind as our greatest natural resource. It's the source of how we suffer, get confused, and it's the source of our liberation, too. To realize there is one who has never been confused, never been bound by anything, unencumbered to each speck of dust without becoming its partner. I love that. It's like all these specks that come into our mind and 
how we partner them and take them, take away, take away, just get lost in them. But we expect our mind to perform just as we would like, yet we don't necessarily take care of our mind. We really have to take care of our mind and understand its mechanisms, how it works. That's why we have zazen, so we can look very directly. That's why we have practice and study. This is how we must penetrate and study, he says at the end. The boundless field, the boundless, the field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the beginning. That vastness I was speaking of, that unfixed nature, that everything, there's a constant moving, we're atoms, we're molecules. We hear and we're turned by the Dharma, and then you take your seat and you sit still and it's like, whoa! (laughs) It's like, I used to say it was like a pinball machine, the thoughts, right, just going back and forth. You know, we see like, wow, I wanted peace and bliss. I'm meditating. And then we find ourselves in the midst of a storm. (laughs) And that's our mind. We see the profusion of thoughts. It's not bad. It's not a sin. We just see it. You know, it's that there's a reason they call it a monkey mind, right? Like it's, we're in a jungle and we grab a vine and we swing and we swing and we swing and we swing and we just keep swinging. Thought to thought to thought to image to thought. It proliferates endlessly, effortlessly. (laughs) And if we're following the teaching, the instruction you get, we can each see how it takes a lot of effort and training to this tendency to fabricate, um, to check, in check. We see how obsessive it truly is, the mind, that it takes the simplest thought, jumps on it, and runs in all directions. I think it's really fascinating to, to watch it, to see it, when you, can, when you can actually begin to go like, oh my gosh, what is all this? It's nothing more than harmless static, except we believe it. We believe the stuff in our mind, because it's our stuff, right? It's my thought. It must be real. It must represent the truth. And left unexamined, the mind will run off to the strangest places. Yeah. And if we're lucky, we'll wander wander into that circle of wonder that he speaks of. And we'll say, what is this? Is this useful? What's happening? And I was thinking about, I know how there's attention deficit, but I also wonder if an aspect is attention inefficiency, attention inefficient. I like, who of us have ever learned in school the importance of our mind, of quieting down, of understanding the nature of a thought, what is a thought? Can you imagine if we learn something about that? So the habit to keep everything going has been running 
and the connection to our body within that, we've gotten further away because we're always connected to communication in some way, many of us filling in. And we don't go out and plow a field or spend a lot. I hope you get time to do that where you're just in nature, have space to feel your body in the sky and then on the land. You can do it here in, in the city. Yet according to Hongzhir, the deep source, transparent down to the bottom, can radiantly shine and can respond unencumbered to each speck of dust without becoming its partner. Utter emptiness has no image. But we do give, fabricate and give power to and run on with these images as something very worthy and real. And this is why we have a specific clear practice to sit with. Counting the breath is where we start. One inhale and one exhale. One, two. Numbers don't really carry any kind of meaning or emotional response or reactivity. We can only breathe one inhale and one exhale at a time. It's very simple. So we can renounce everything else and dedicate ourselves to this one thing. But when we sit there, we we do like to think. We try to figure things out. We worry. We indulge our fantasies. And before we know it, we're somewhere else. And that's not a sin, right? We're just lost in our thinking mind at that moment. But the problem is we're often unaware. That's happening all the time. And the freedom of our mind is we can go anywhere. We can go to the past. We can go to the future. We can go on a beach. We can be having a drink. We can... We can create anything with our mind. But when we want to be here and fully present, experiencing our life just right here completely, that's hard. We always seem to be off somewhere else. William James, you know him? He wrote a book called Varieties of Religious Experience, and he did an experiment around the turn of the 19th century where He wanted to see how long the average person could actually concentrate. And he used the example of a bird sitting on a tree limb. So how long do you think we could keep our full concentration on the bird? He said 4.7 seconds. Now, I think that's changed. It might be less now, but... 4.7 seconds to focus and concentrate on that bird before our attention flies off. Our attention can return. The bird may come back and land on another branch, he says. But how long is that flight away? How long before your attention returns to right here? He says it could be five minutes maybe 10 minutes, maybe half an hour, maybe a year, maybe a lifetime, a lifetime. And that gap in our awareness 
makes us suffer. Because on some, some level we know we've departed. And until we can get quiet in some way, through meditation, some practice, we will be unable to see that process happening, that mechanism. And we just get lost in our head and we miss that connection to the fullness of our life. That's why we suffer. So in Zazen, we study this moment by simply learning to understand the nature of our mind and thoughts and what happens to us and being lost in it. Now, you've come to a practice. Imagine many of us who don't have a practice, and that's just the way it is, just a constant stream. So after several years of practice, I remember I was really interested in how I would slip off into thoughts or start daydreaming during zazen or go a little blank. And um, I don't know, it kind of felt like the Star Trek. I was like the Star Trek Enterprise, you know, looking for Klingons <laughs> um, going around the galaxy. Like, where, where am I going off? And so I was a little frustrated, and I thought, why couldn't I just follow the bodily sensations of breathing? Why was that so hard? Why, why couldn't I just follow that without going away? What is happening in this wandering off here and there? And I would be sitting there, and I'd suddenly find myself thinking about something else. And I'm positive that most of us experience this. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. And I think we might think we're powerless over that process. Like it just happens. It doesn't. It doesn't just some, somehow just happen. And then the advice we are given when you notice you've drifted off is just gently reassert your intended practice and see what has come in acknowledge it, release it, set it aside, and return to what's intended. Um, This is good advice. It really is good advice. It may be deceptive in its simplicity. That's That's all you do, is see it, acknowledge it, let it go, and come back. Maybe it doesn't urge us to engage our practice um, more deeply, but the process really intrigued me. And how did I go from paying attention and being present to some drifted off mental space? Could I pay attention to losing paying attention? Was it possible to investigate that? So that's what I did. And I thought that I would be able to investigate it because I know from the teachings that phenomena arise dependently on conditions, that it doesn't happen by itself, just mysteriously appearing out of the blue, as we would say. So we may think thoughts are random, but they're not. This is what is meant in the teachings by having faith in cause and effect, right? This being, that becomes. That being, this becomes. I suppose that drifting off happened in response to conditions that could be observed if I was careful enough. And so here's the method I followed. 
actually not much different from what I usually do and was taught. But I just sent my intention differently to observe the drifting off. And so when I first started sitting, I placed my attention in my hara, my mental attention in the hara, three points below the finger, in the na- below the navel. And I followed the bodily sensation of breathing. And I eventually noticed there were two mechanisms for drifting off. Maybe more, but I, I saw two major ones. One is I would take hold of an image. And the other was just drowning in a sea of words. Just words, 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 words. Just drowning in a sea of words. And then what I found, what I found out is drifting off is actually grasping. It's an active act, not a passive happening, as I thought. We don't just blank out. We lose our focus because our mind has grasped something an image, a concept, and has gotten caught up in what we've grasped. Grasping for an image has a force to it. It, To me, it was like how, when I saw an image, it was like kind of like a shark, how a shark eats, just like gulp. (laughs) Like, it doesn't take a little bit, just like one big gulp. That was like an image, I would just gulp it quickly and completely, eating the prey. And after being aware of this grasping, it becomes relatively easier to let go and continue on with the awareness of just the bodily sensation of breathing. But I noticed a different apprehension when I was distracted by a word. The mind grasped the word, and that caused a proliferation of words in in rapid succession. As soon as I grasped a word, it just kept, more words kept coming. Like it was a little ball of honey, and suddenly, like, all these bees were on it. And I learned there's actually a term for this in Sanskrit called papanka, which I love to say, papanka, which means conceptual proliferation. And loosely translated, it's the proliferation of thoughts and mental events that generate reactivity and views that cloud and distort our capacity to see and understand the way things are. So maybe this will tie into why it's worth letting go of thoughts. What's, what's the point? Why would we even want to do that? So I thought I'd give you some classic proliferation stories, how it happens. A woman wants some potatoes for a meal she's cooking, so she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. And as he walks out the door, she calls after him, be sure to get a good price. This may have happened to us. As he walks, uh, so all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the very best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys the lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. 
In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than the top-priced potatoes because the seller might try to stick them with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. When he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. Why do people have to be so greedy as to stick me with rotten potatoes? Just at this point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him, you can keep your rotten potatoes. And he walks off. So that's what we might do, right? Something gets in us and we just keep going. And by the time it all gets all distorted and we, we're just not seeing things as they are. I was thinking about um, when I'm at the monastery, they cook while we're eating, while we're hearing the Dharma talk, and sometimes you could start smelling lunch as you're sitting in the Dharma talk. And I remember sometimes going, oh, the talk's ending soon. I smell lunch, right? (laughs) Something really good in the air. Kind of smells like potatoes. Maybe it's French fries, perhaps. What time is it? Oh, God, I really want some French fries. I'm hungry. Actually starved. This is hard work. I'm not sure I like zazen. My legs are killing me. This may not be my practice after all. Maybe the last time I come, everyone else is doing this so well. God, they look like they sit so much better than me. I'm so still. I'm not so still. And I still want some fries. My grandmother, she made them perfectly. Damn, I forgot to call her. You see, you're always a screw-up. So this is, this is what, what takes up our, our life. So I got, I wanted to see what does the Buddha say about this papanka and found a short discourse. I love the name of it. It's called the Honeyball Sutra. And it's named because the wisdom is so sweet. And in it, the Buddha says, one who thinks about, one, what one thinks about that one mentally proliferates. Simply stated, mental proliferation is simply thinking running amok. So as I said, it's not necessarily a problem to think. That's the brain's function. But once we get to the level of this mental proliferation, we're seriously off course, and not much good can come of it. We just start to swirl. And that's what we call samsara. Samsara, round and round and round, like a bee in the jar, goes round and round. Proliferation, as the Buddha speaks about it, is the source of where we experience the most agitation, restlessness, and unease in our hearts and minds. It often leads to struggle with ourselves and others. Bhikkhu Bodhi said, Papanka is a kind of vandalism of our psyche and emotions that we get addicted to that involves obsession, rumination, and preoccupation. So if we think about news stories that come in, how we're baited, and we want story after story after story, we keep going again and again. We may not recognize 
our obsession, our loneliness in that moment, our fear in that moment, alarming headlights, headlines, flashes. And then if we have this device constantly, we're, we're just on it. And it's just, it just keeps the whole thing going. The grasper goes for it, craving the next info. So we can practice that and stop and cease and see how that makes us feel, see what we are actually experiencing before we move. It is a process. We create it. We can undo it. And this is how I understand the Buddha's words. What we think about, that is what we mentally proliferate. And if we couple that with very strong tendency to believe our thoughts and the thoughts of others, well, gets us really worked up. Inwardly, by hanging on to these thoughts, we wind up with more lust, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, desire for becoming, ignorance, problems tormented by an overfull mind, taking whatever sense object arises in our experience, smothering it with wave after wave of mental proliferation. We don't get any calm. The wheel keeps spinning. It doesn't allow us to reveal the clarity of mind. And that's what we're practicing, is like to notice that and like settle down, make some space. So we since he's saying our mind is clear right from the beginning, down, down, all the way down through, a clear circle of brightness, we have, to, we have to get to that. It's there. But if we keep the whole thing going, we'll miss, we'll miss it. And yet there's the yearning because that is who we are. We are that boundless field. Outwardly, This unwholesome state of mind plays a huge role in generating violence, leads to taking up weapons, quarrels, disputes, false speech, greed, consumerism. It's part of what leads us to practice avoidance. So we stay away because we're locked into our headspace of thinking, thinking up what we imagine, lost in space. The name's perfect, that kind of space. Lost in fantasy, stories about ourselves and others, that familiar thought circle that we've gone through thousands of times before and never asking, wait, wait, what's happening? This is why we need to get quiet, find solitude, come to our senses, I spoke about that. Daido Roshi used to say, an unexamined mind is a dangerous one. Do you need proof? Do we need proof? Buddha said, there is no one thing that could do us more harm than an untrained mind. All these definitions and meanings come together in experience, in one place, which is not hard to locate. Once we sit down, we see it. When Buddha realized himself, his utterance was said to be 
that all sentient beings everywhere fully possess the wisdom and virtues of the awakened ones. But because of false conceptions and attachments, we do not realize it. After all, says Hongzhir, haven't you yourself established the mind that thinks up all these illusory conditions? You must purify, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Must see through these tendencies to illuminate the original truth that not a single thing exists. Until then, it's obscured. And he offers a variety of methods. We can be grinding down, pounding, (laughs) purifying, brushing away, curing. So we need to learn how to work with ourselves. Grinding down, is that your method? Can we grind down gently and firm? I was telling the residents I, I I had an inflammatory um, condition, a chronic inflammatory condition. I don't now. I was told I would have it forever, but I don't. Um, but a woman was giving a workshop, um, and it was called, and she had a book that was titled, um, I Beat My Illness. I thought that was very interesting, <laughs> that title. And so I went through her lecture, and I said, why did you um, pick the that you beat your illness. I said, I I had to stop beating. I had to caress my illness. And she said, no, I needed to beat it. And and she started to tell me a little bit about her life and all the, like, and she became a black belt in karate. (laughs) And, And I was like, no, I was like, no, I needed to be much more caressing. I was a beater, you know, to myself. I wanted the caressing aspect, but how do you how do we as we let go of thoughts do we turn into the t- the thing we don't want to be like we're inside we're the tyrant or we're the uh, judge or we're the critic you know as we see something arise in our mind we get really nasty about it that's not going to help so how do we work with ourselves how do you let go of thoughts can we be firm and gentle as Pema Chodron would say, be offering ourselves metta, loving kindness. Like, why get mad at our, our, our mind, our beautiful mind? Yeah, it's crazy up there until it kind of learns how to work with itself. And it's, not, it's kind of impossible if we want to be loving and kind to others, that that's really how we want to be. It has to go both ways. We can only go so far outwards as we can go inwards. So this is the time to practice in your life, in our life. It's so much is harsh that we really need to practice being affirming and generous and skillful with ourselves. Because we know if we're aggressive, that just creates more aggression. We have to meet that shadow in ourselves in practice, which can get quite uncomfortable. But that's what we want to see, you know. I remember when I first came to practice, I was like, I want to see what's real and true. And then when stuff came up, I was like, no, 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 not that, you know. 
And there were, and then like I, inside, I was like, well, that's that's like real in the sense of it's arising. I can question if it's true. Buddha speaks of a well-trained mind. He speaks of this. He had this line: "A person who thinks the thought they wish to think." but does not think the thoughts they do not wish to think. And I was like, is that possible? Isn't that, suppre- isn't that suppression? But can you feel the implications of being able to do that to a person who thinks the thought they wish to think? So if the thought arises, do we want to continue with that? What's the thought we wish to think? and to not wish to think. Not a suppression, but not to keep the whole thing going. Do we need to get hijacked? Is there a proliferation-free zone? Yes. Yes, this is a real possibility. The storms we find ourselves in are not ready-made. It's a process that can be understood a process, too, that can liberate, liberate thoughts. There is a proliferation-free zone. It's the direct effect of being mindful and to loosen the dissolve of that habit, uproot the habit of dwelling and grasping. Meet the grasper. So until now, we've mostly talked about the mechanisms of grasping. We're from a school called Mahayana. What do they have to say about grasping? It's one of the major schools of Indian Mahayana Buddhism. There were two. There's the, this is um, the Madhyamaka school, where um, Zen ancestor Nagarjuna, who we chanted this morning, is the founder of this school. And I'll point out one of Nagarjuna's uh, teachings where he addresses the issue of grasping and the grasper in verse form. It's in his fundamental verses on the middle way. Conditioned by feeling, sensation. Conditioned by feeling, sensation is craving. Craving arises because of feeling, sensation. When it appears, there is grasping, the four spheres of grasping. When there is grasping, the grasper comes into existence. If they did not grasp, then being freed, they would not come into existence. So grasping is the basis for the grasper and the grasped. Again, from the Honeyball Sutra, it says, the Buddha put forth a very simple but profound formula. Dependent upon contact, there is feeling, right? So we make contact with something, there's a feeling. That which we feel, if we feel it, we perceive it. That which we perceive, we think about. And what we think about and dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. So that's essentially the basic formula for papanka. Contact, feeling, 
perception with all its associations from the past, the liking, the disliking, the dwelling, dwelling that turns into conclusions, into images, into beliefs about ourself and others. And all of this happens quick. You just look, and it, it starts. It's so fast that we're in it, right? So it's not, we have to see the, how that mechanism works because it's really fast. But this is it. So the gift of the Dharma of Zazen is to have teachings about it to understand that somebody, like we have a tour guide, essentially, all through the teachings for everything we're experiencing, just about, that we can say, like, what is, what's going on? And we can, we can adjust and free ourselves. So at some point, sitting alone does need study. We need the teachings. We need to receive them. And zazen, to slow down the process so we can see it, so we can understand it, investigate it, renounce, refrain, liberate thoughts, feelings, and emotions. That's how we can find some space in all that's coming at us in this world, understanding what's happening and what, how we how it comes in, and then what we do with it. This is really the key. The other day I wanted to know how to work a fire extinguisher. We have them all over the temple, but I I was like, how do you work this thing? (laughs) Like, what if there's a fire? Um, Are there any instructions? And basically it says, point nozzle at the base of fire and extinguish. And I thought, that's Zazen. Point nozzle at the base of the fire and extinguish. Yeah, to look at what's fueling the agitation. To not pour more gasoline on the fire. It's already inflamed. Not just now, but we've, we've carried an overwhelmed body the moment we were born. We were born into overwhelm. And we just keep putting overwhelm on overwhelm. Dogen has that lovely line where he says, overwhelm overwhelms overwhelming. We get so intimate and just let the overwhelm be what it is. Don't add more to it. Point the nozzle at the fire and extinguish. See and don't perpetuate. This is our practice life. And I hope we can help each other as best we can, returning to Hongzhou with thoughts clear, silently sitting, wander into the center circle of wonder. So if we can take a breath when we're really wrapped up in our situation, in our mental situation, just take a breath and just, just go, I wonder, I wonder. That, that carries a lot. That really can help. Re- go into the center of wonder. Make it a little bit larger. Because it is. We are larger. There's a lot in that thought that's not just ours. It's large. It's, it's huge. It belongs to each of us. We share it. 
we share the healing. The thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center circle of wonder. This is how we must penetrate and study. So thank you for your attention. And I hope that we can just keep practicing this life together in the Dharma. Um, Those of you that are new to keep exploring, keep bringing it into that center of wonder and see if your own sitting down, you don't begin to feel some of that opening happening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.